Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What does it take to achieve excellence in any endeavor? <laughs> in, a, in a word, sacrifice. Koshula said that our objective is perfection, or as close as we can get. We have to be willing to sacrifice. He alluded to the fact that we played in the in the Florida heat, said we're, we're gonna cut out our water breaks. We're gonna become camel-like. And, and we, by doing that, we'll be able to outlast the other team. Our attention to detail. You know, uh, the worst thing you could do for Coach Hill is go through the motions. In other words, to act like you were sincere, but not be sincere. So to make that sacrifice in order to get that gain and strive for perfection. And that takes a sacrifice. This is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Fascinating stories to amaze, encourage, and inspire you in fishing, fitness, and the outdoors. And we're brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. I started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends, people that I admire and respect, and you. It has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website 
is TomRollandPodcast.com, and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done, both the How To Tuesdays, the Full Links, and the Physical Fridays. They all live on TomRollandPodcast.com, and the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram, or you can go to our big account, saltwater underscore experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now let's get on to today's show. Hi, I'm Larry Zonka, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast, and we're ready to go. Are you? Larry, how are you? Well, um, to be quite honest, uh, writing a book... Well, in, in 1972, Jim Kick and I, my running mate with Miami Dolphins, got together with Dave Anderson and uh, wrote a book. But Dave actually wrote the book. <laughs> so my recollection of writing a book was having Dave write the book about Jim and I. And it sold a lot of copies and did real well. So when they came to me about a memoir, Audrey got after me about a memoir. I remembered what happened back in 72. I thought, well, that won't be tough. If you were going to write a book, and see it through and do it correctly. Put in Coach Word, Coach Shula's words, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Um, it takes a year, a solid year of hard work. Yeah. I'm reaching, we're about the 10th or 10th and a half month. So to answer your question, I'm doing fine now, but I'm looking forward to when we get like over the mountain. I gotcha. Well, I uh, I got a, a copy and I don't know, is it is it all out for everybody to have? I, I got a copy yes, of yeah, a pre-release, I guess, come but, pick but up, I was able to read it. Uh, I was able to read it before this and I was hoping I was scrambling even this morning. I was, I was reading some of it, the, the very last part of it, but, uh, very good. Very good. Um, I, I would, the first thing I thought about was just congratulating you on a life well lived so far. Um, you've really crammed a lot of it, a lot of stuff into, uh, into anyone's life. I mean, it's really, really cool how, um, and it's much more than football in, in this book. And that's what appeals to, to this audience here. Of course, we have plenty of football fans and plenty of Miami Dolphins fans because of all the stuff that I've done in the Florida Keys. And that's where a large portion of this audience is, is in, is in the Florida Keys and, and Miami and South Florida. So they're obviously very familiar with you, but then this is, uh, you know, an outdoors hunting and fishing podcast too. And so mo mo many of the audience is going to remember your show North to Alaska on ESPN. I certainly do. And uh, so we got, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you right away was why was it important for you to write this book? When, when someone reached out to you to write it, you know, if you're going to do something right, there needs to be kind of a reason why that you're, you're interested in doing it and seeing it through for 10 months. I mean, that's a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication to do that. What, what was, your driving reason to, to write this book? Tom, be quite honest. Uh, age was number one factor. And I kept fighting that. Well, Audrey's uh, my life partner here. She's been with me for 25. I've been, we've been together for 25 or 30 years and uh, did a lot of the Alaska series or all the Alaska series together. And she's been after me right along for the last five years, quite frankly, to, put it all down because it's something that's pretty interesting, you know, the background growing up in the country and aspiring to get to Alaska, finally getting there. But I think the real thing that lined the ball up and we kicked off was when coach Shula passed. Mm. 
And I started telling her about all the stories that where he and I had come to reasonably <laughs> reach decisions to not, not, not talk about the situation that came up that, that was at hand when I played until one of us passed away or time, or we were both retired from the NFL. And when he passed, it kind of was a wake up call to answer your question. That's when Audrey turned to me and said, well, what do you think now? And I said, well, it's time to do it. And so we, we launched on it and it's not a task to be taken lightly. It, uh, when you reach, uh, 70, 75 years old, and you've lived most of your life already, particularly your active life, you want to, uh, sit down and give it some thought. It's not something you just throw down very quickly. Mm-hmm. We did an outline. We didn't want to make just a football book. We want to do football. We want to do the outdoors. As you know, you've been in the business just like myself. 20 years of outdoor TV is a lot. And if you get to go where you want to go and do what you want to do, then that's a success. And particularly if you can do it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we tried to put outline that in the book. Certainly the undefeated season, the football career is the pivotal point, the center, the heart, if you will, of the book. Uh, but at the same time, we we did preview and talk about my interest in the outdoors and how I grew up in the country, much like yourself, loving the outdoors, aspiring to get to the outdoors. Where can I catch the biggest fish? Where can I catch the best fish? <laughs> All those things, uh, the biggest game, the biggest moose, uh, so on. And we aspired to do that. And having done a lot of that, then how to put that into a book and cram it down into, uh, you know, a few chapters and, and, and see if it'll, it'll fly. Yeah. Well, yeah. you did, you did a nice job with it. Did you have some sort of, uh, writing mentor or coach or somebody that, that helped you with this or, or did you just oh, kind several, of start? Several. Yeah. We started off, uh, uh, we weren't happy with one or two of the first ones and, uh, frankly went through two or three or four of them. And before we finally found someone that was just as interested in the outdoor side of it as the football side of it. Don't get me wrong. The football side of it is a lot of fun and a great recollection and a lot of inside things that happened between Coach Shula and the team that I gave him my word I would never reveal until we were both fully retired or out of football or whatever. And at this time is a good time to, to reveal those things and put it in. And we put those things in the book. He once said to me when he first got to, to Miami, and became the new head coach there. He stood in front of the team and he said, anytime you address me in a meeting or in front of this team or like this in a gathering, when there's other team members present, you refer to me as coach and you'll observe me as the boss. And I want that respect. He said, now, if you have something personal on your, on your plate, and you want to get it off your chest, <laughs> you come in, you make an appointment, you come into my office, when the door closes, it's just me and you, then say what's on your mind. It's man to man. And but that information stays inside that office. And I'll tell you what, when I first walked in there, I, I shut the door. He had just got there as a new head coach. I put this in, I shut the door, turned around. He said, what's on your mind? I said, I don't like you very much. <laughs> he said, well, he sat down, kind of laughed. He sat down, looked at me, he said, well, at least we have something in common. He said, I don't like you very much either. <laughs> I said, why don't you trade me? He said, I've looked into that, but I can't get it up for you. So where do you go from there? <laughs> wow. What a start. The relationship blossomed and started right from there because there was no illusions. You know, it was, uh, it was like the outdoors. It's cold, hard facts. Yeah. I like 
that. I, I like Shula because he was like the outdoors, in my opinion. He he was what he was and, and never varied. And over years of working with him and being coached by him and, and playing for him, we learned that it wasn't just a scam. It wasn't a sham. What he said and what, how he outlined it, he was for real. And that, uh, I like that. Yeah. Well, in your book, you, you talk about how, um, when he first came around, you know, the team wasn't very good. And just in a, in a few short years, um, you turn into legendary and, I thought it was interesting how uh, how that relationship, how you how you kind of documented that relationship, and it wasn't just you. A lot of people were having a hard time with with uh, with the coach. It, it seemed like uh, from from what you wrote in the book that you know, I mean, you have this disciplinarian that comes in, and everybody was you know used to doing their own thing, and and you know, you're professional athletes, you should be able to take care of yourself. He's putting in weight limits and and other things, which which I found very interesting because one of the most interesting things, like I was searching for all the outdoor stuff in in the book, but you know, I've watched a lot of football in my life, and and just how much the game has changed between the time that you were starting um, the the NFL and today. Not only with the pay of the athletes, but the size of the athletes, and how 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 Coach Shula wanted you to be at 235 pounds, and you were kind of happy at 245, and there was this 10 pound uh, difference there. But you were you were a massive uh, fullback at the time. Yes, and he was he. That's why I went in his office and said, uh, you know, I don't like you. I like to, you know, pretty much outline how I like to be traded. And he said, well, I can't get enough for you, so we're stuck with each other. But he had been in his history. If you look back before he came to Miami, he was at Baltimore, and he had a reputation of being a passing coach. He was defensive back when he played. He was very much into the passing game. Saw that as the future of the NFL, and certainly that's where it's at. All the rules changes today. He outlined all that. Decided that. Uh, uh, that I was going to be the running back, but he wanted me down to his, what he deemed was the necessary weight. Well, who, who gave him a magic wand to tell, you know, body fat relationships comes into this thing. You know, uh, I don't know how to put it, but I went into his office and said, you know, you're, you're so exacting in details of all these different things. And yet you arbitrarily pick a weight for a running back and don't take into consideration the body fat content or the, you know, the, the size of speed, you don't, it's not all relevant. And he thought about that and he never said I was right, but he did go and find a weight uh, body fat specialist, put us all in the pool, all 60 of us at training camp, weighed us in a flotation device to determine body fat discovered that I was the third lowest body fat, you know, muscle to fat ratio on the team outside of 280 pound defensive backs. <laughs> so he said, you know, you're right. The only time he ever said I was right. He said, I've thought about it now. And he said, instead of 235, he said, I know you want to weigh in at 245. He said, I'm going to make it, I'm going to give you two pounds up to 237. <laughs> And that's when I realized <laughs> it was hopeless. I either got down to the weight that he uh, dictated or I didn't and I had to face a fine issue. It was uh, it was not when you didn't play between the lines that he laid down. He was not a happy camper and your life became miserable. So it was easy to easier to do it than to argue about it. So. It's, it's, um, you know, looking back on it and hearing you talk about it and, and reading, reading, I wonder if at this point, after you've written this memoir, 
if you look at it differently and you think, well, the result was that we were the only team ever to go undefeated. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, do you, how, how do you look back at all the all of the way that he coached and the and the the problems that that you may have had with him, um, or disagreements or whatever, and then the result? And it's like, hmm. Well, I don't know. He was right. He was right. <laughs> You know, is there any other answer you can come up with? <laughs> what he was after was perfection. He said, we're, our pursuit is towards perfection. He never said we have to win them all. Perfection for him was getting to the Super Bowl and winning it. Because when he came to us, he was the guy that couldn't win the big one. He had lost a couple of Super Bowls, a couple of conference championships, had fallen by the wayside. He had a history, and they were starting to tag him as he can't win the big one. So he used that instead of – instead of shriveling up from that and trying to cover up from that, he addressed it head on. That's why I named the book called the book head on mm. because he turned our attention, not towards winning, but towards winning towards performing perfection. In other words, each paying attention to each game and to, and his, in his verbiage right after we lost Super Bowl six, he got us all in the room, shut the door. He had been down this road before at the hands of Namath a few years before he shut the door, threw everybody out except the assistant, other assistant coaches and the players. And he said, we just got our asses kicked. Dallas just, just handled us. He said, but instead of making excuses for that, we're going to use that as a center piece. We're going to think about that each week going through the season, as hard as we had worked to get where we were at. He said, we're going to work harder. But we're going to keep that in mind, what happened to us. We thought we had it won before we had it won. So we've got to pay attention to each game as we go along and not break that trend. His, his words exactly was we're going to treat every game as though it were the Super Bowl. Our, objection, our objective is to treat each game like the Super Bowl and win it as we go along. He never said anything about a perfect season. He said we're going to treat each game as the Super Bowl. We're going to be that serious about it. Now, saying that and doing that, right after he said it, Jim Kick looked at me. We're all beat up from just being manhandled by Dallas in Super Bowl five or six. I can't remember. All I remember is Bob Lilly picking me up by my Adam's apple. I can remember that. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Not a nice man on football. <laughs> Jim Kick looked at me and, you know, all we've been through already in three years, he just winked and said, buckle up. And that's when what we did. And Shuley never said we're going to try to win them all. What he said was we're going to pay attention to each game like a Super Bowl. And when we're what he's trying to do was get us into a mold of mm -hmm. being that serious about each game. He never said anything about a perfect season. That was probably past his thoughts, too. To go 17 games in a row and not drop a game is almost nearly impossible. As it's proven but, to be, right? I, nobody, yeah. it, it hasn't been done since. No, perfection's only attainable. Uh, was only attainable once for us, and uh, we came close a couple other times. But close is no that doesn't light the cigar. Mm -hmm. You got to you're on top of the mountain. If you're that far off, might as well be the universe. Right. Um, one of the things that I noticed in this book that um, you know I was born in 1968, so a little bit younger than you, but uh, um, I I noticed, and I was reading through a lot of the history here. 
and I had remembered the USFL and I had remembered, I didn't remember the WFL, but the WFL and the USFL, I didn't realize that you had played such a, such a, a pivotable, 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 <laughs> that's easy for me to say, pivotable role <laughs> in, um, in the USFL. And uh, just kind of wondering what your uh, recollection of that is. Is it, is it a positive kind of place in your career or, or where does that sit with you? After I got done playing, I had an opportunity to go with Fred Bullard, the owner of the uh, Jacksonville Bulls, and uh, he moved a new USFL team in there, expansion franchise in the USFL. And uh, I was with him for two or three years and uh, went through it and worked in the front office. I started off in the personnel deal, being a contact for the old NFL players. It was still very uh, fresh out of the NFL. I had a lot of contacts within the NFL about guys jumping over to the USFL. And as time went on, I ended up uh, for about a year, a little over a year, being the uh, general manager for Mr. Bullard, who brought football to Jacksonville. But we had, I think, I like to believe, and I can support this with facts if necessary, but I think that Jacksonville was far and away the most successful franchise uh, in in. Uh, in the USFL, mm-hmm. we uh, filled, well, I shouldn't say we filled the stadium. We came cl- very close to filling the stadium. We had 55 to 60,000 people show up each week in a home game. And uh, that was, that was a good feeling. Jacksonville was ready to have a professional team. And we demonstrated that through the USFL. Yeah. That's super cool. And where along the line did, did the television show come into your career? What, what year that was what about in the, 2000s, right? 2000. Yeah, right around uh, 96 and 1996. I started in that. It was, uh, I went through a divorce. I met Audrey Bradshaw. We started to see each other on a regular basis. We talked about, we loved to fish. And I started aspiring, I, you know, all my childhood, I had dreamt about getting to Alaska or trying to get to Alaska. And we started to uh, get into the outdoor TV thing. A number of different people that had shows back then invited me on. I did the guest appearances and I thought, you know, sat down with Kurt Gowdy one time and Kurt said, you know, <laughs> you belong in this business. He said, you you have the the, the wherewithal to do the hosting and, and do the show. And that was a great compliment by him. And sure. I, uh, I took him at it and used him and through a lot of his contacts I started to, to initiate a thing. And then I'm, like I said, I, I went, I started to see Audrey on a regular basis and uh, we talked about it and decided to give it a go in Alaska. And uh, boy, it, uh, I think if any, if there's any one person that loves Alaska more than myself, <laughs> it would be her. Yeah, She just loved it and tackled it uh, with uh, a great amount of enthusiasm. And we, uh, we landed the show and you know what it's like to produce an outdoor. You've been, yeah. you've been doing 20 years, you know, the ups and downs, you get a good sponsor, a good, healthy sponsor. We start out with steel, the chainsaw people. Mm-hmm. I put that in the book on how that happened. And then later we had uh, uh, Napa the national auto parts association uh, company came to us and bought out the whole thing. And that's when we went solid Alaska and did uh, a, a great number of shows per year for the remaining 16 years. Wow. What a what a great business, isn't it? Yeah, it is a great business. And um, I'm very fortunate to have, have been in it. And I had a, you know, I, I, somewhat similar. And I would imagine that a lot of people that end up in the in the outdoor um, television business is 
somewhat similar. You're you're either a, a guest on someone else's show, or in my case, I had an opportunity to be in the the great outdoor games, um, which you probably remember they had it at um, Lake Placid, New York, when I was in there in, in the year Ooh, 2000, and and it was a big deal. They had the steel, um, you know, timber sports thing, and the dogs, and the fly, and they had fly fishing, and so I was fortunate enough to get in that and then do well and actually win win that deal, which gave me the opportunity to be on a lot of other shows. And I had been on one show previous to that, which was Shaw Grigsby's, Shaw Grigsby's One More Cast. And he was very similar to kind of what you talked about with Kurt Gowdy. He was like, you know, you're, you're good at this. Like yeah. you could, you could do this. And I never, I didn't pay it any mind for a couple of years. And then, then I thought, well, you know, I really don't want to do these redfish tournaments anymore. I had, had, children at home in diapers and, and I just, I was spending too much time away from home and I thought, well, you know, I think we could, I think we could do this, you know, and it was naive. It was very, very naive, but Shaw Grigsby was the first person I called and he said, you know, you'd be great at it here. Take my crew and go film a pilot. And I was so green. I was like, what's a pilot? <laughs> I didn't even know, you know, and, and, uh, but it, it, it turned out, it turned out pretty well, even though the, when we, when we submitted our show to the first network, they said, this isn't good enough. You're going to have to go back and try again. So we did that, but, um, yeah, well, I think you said that to you though, you did it again. You sure. went back and read it. Yeah. You didn't get all upset and blow it and say, I just can't do this. Walk away from it. If it took more, you were willing because you knew in your heart, that's what you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did know, I did know it. And, and I could see, you know, through, through being on Shaw's show and then through the great outdoor games, I see all this production going on behind you. You know, when you're in that situation, you're not only seeing what people see on the television, you're seeing everything going on, all this organization and cameramen and, and assistants and helpers and scheduling and all this stuff. And I just found the whole thing fascinating. I just thought this is, this is amazing. And we're supposed to go out there and catch a fish in the middle of all this, which was a super challenge, right? Like that would, that seemed to be the easiest part of the whole thing. And I still think that that's the easiest part of the whole thing. There's, there's so many things that happen. I can address the tough part. Tough part when you do it in Alaska is find a cameraman that'll sleep out in a tent and is not that afraid of bears. Yes. Yes. Where do <laughs> you find those? Like <laughs> Where do you find those? Well, your uh your stories about the show, especially the the caribou go, uh hunt gone bad, um serious. I mean, you had some serious, serious situations there, life threatening situations that I mean that one sounded extremely um close to maybe being the last of well, of uh was, of the show and you and audrey that was uh the, about the longest 24-hour period i've ever experienced in my entire life that uh walk us through that just a little bit if you wouldn't mind uh i know it's it's written in your book and 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 people are going to want to going to get it and read the full the full uh description of it but you know that it, people that have been to Alaska, when you're reading your book and you start to, you're, you're explaining how it was a nice day and then all of a sudden the weather starts to change. And if you've been to Alaska, you know that when that weather changes, it could change for 30 seconds or it could change for the next three months. I don't know. It could be really, really bad. And in this case, uh, you you knew that it was turning bad. You knew you should be moving on, but I guess the guide wanted to continue um, or was assuring you or maybe made a bad call. But either way, you end up in a situation where the, the weather changes very quickly on you. 
and uh, it was tough. It did. It did. And we, uh, we had, the weather got rough. We had trouble uh, bringing the, uh, the game that we had harvested in on the, on the, on the rafts, on the inflatable rafts to get it on top and bend in, into the boat. So we were a little late getting out from, we're out in the, about the middle of the Aleutian islands. And we came out around a point trying to get uh, the, into the ocean and to go around the point and come back into a bay that was out on the other side of the point. And when we went out there, uh, it was blowing very hard. And we, uh, the captain said he thought we could make it, but turns out we couldn't. So when we went out and lost the cover of the bay and went to go around the island, around the mountain on the end of the uh, peninsula, the uh, north wind just grabbed us and we went out to sea and spent 17 or 18 hours on the North Sea wow. fighting uh, wave to wave in uh yeah, we're in the Aleutian Ocean there for uh, a long 19 hours, literally living uh, moment to moment most of that time. Wow. wow. So it, I talk about it in the book. It's, uh, you know, we go into great detail on it and how it happened. It's uh, tough to reiterate it here in just a few minutes. Sure. We studied and took it. But it, it's the kind of situation that uh, we shouldn't have gotten into. We should have played it very safe and stayed back. We went out to take a look and we went one step too far and couldn't get back. And just a short hundred yard area there, mm -hmm. we uh, we just went a little bit too far and couldn't turn around. By the time we tried to turn around, waves were just getting too big to fight. So we had to go with it. And we went with it for the next 19 hours and almost capsized several times. Wow. But uh, just through the grace of God, you know, that's one of those things. I'll tell you what, we're, we're, that's uh, that's nothing to play with. And especially, you know, it, it, so many people that listen to this podcast are, are Florida Florida listeners or, or people that are in the tropical environments. And we all know about the, the, the rough weather and you can get in a lot of trouble in Florida. But when you also combine that with very cold water temperatures, that is that is super dangerous. So I'm so glad you you made it. And um me too. It sure did make for a good story in your book. I will tell you that. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, that that was really cool in your book is is you documenting how you grew up, um, basically a farm boy, and um, you know you you made some comparisons to to football and the you know how you used to feed the cows and and uh, push them out of the way and, and a person was was not as big a deal, um, and I enjoyed that and I thought it was really good, and you just kind of. Um, it was just kind of a natural thing that you like to hunt and fish, but I'd wondered, um, and maybe I missed it in the book, but it was there, did you have a mentor that, that, um, that helped you to learn how to hunt and fish and kind of that you hunted and fished with when you were, when you were young, that kind of instilled the passion in you? Not really. Uh, people in my family, my, my father, my uncles all liked to fish, and I had been fishing with them, you know, out in a boat on Lake Erie, different places. But uh, being where I was in the family uh, of all the siblings, I had three that were four, four or five years older and older. And then I had two that were four to five years and younger. So I was the middle one. Dad left and was away for the Second World War. And there was that's when I popped up uh, about the time he came back <laughs> a year after he got back from the, the Second World War. 
And then because of moving to the farm and so on, there weren't any children born for a number of years. And so I grew up kind of in a eight year gap where there mm-hmm. weren't any children mm-hmm. and was alone most of the time. I didn't have a brother that was always around. I didn't have a, a younger brother or sister that was always around. So I was on my own and was out in the woods a lot. And I discovered the areas of where the fish and where the games game was at by myself wandering around, you know, in between two huge four or 500 acre dairy farms was our little 20 acre track. So I grew up with, uh, you know, over a thousand acres of open ground around me. And at uh, five to 11 or 12 years old, I got to fish in the ponds and, you know, having learned from my father and my uncles and my older brother, how to bait a hook and so on. I just initiated that on my own. And I, I developed a rapport with the small critters on the farm, birds, owls, uh, hawks, all the things that were there, uh, raccoons, possums, all of it. And we had not a pet in each category at one time <laughs> or another, much to the chagrin of my father and my uncles who liked to plant gardens. <laughs> but I, I grew up that way and just uh, I, I know I figured your background is probably pretty similar yeah. from you talking about uh, your your childhood. Um, it just channeled me towards hunting and fishing in the outdoors. And I like that. Um, not that I didn't enjoy being on the football field, the lights, you know, all the excitement that was fun. But for to be relaxed and have a good time, I always preferred the the country. How about yourself? Um, well, very similar. Uh, I, it, it's very similar when you, when you talk about how your birth order, uh, my birth, I'm the youngest in my family. I had two older sisters and they were six and eight years older than me. So that kind of left me at, you know, they were starting high school and they were driving and stuff while I was in my, you know, roaming around years and and there was plenty of woods and stuff like that but I did have uh my dad was was very instrumental in taking me fishing and and it didn't turn out to be any of the type of fishing that I do now or do professionally but mostly um you know large, small largemouth bass and bluegill he loved to fish for bluegill we fished with crickets a lot we fished you know bobbers and crickets and then we kind of graduated to lures but the lures were more like you know beetle spins and and little you know panfish lures and um but it was one of my favorite memories ever was, uh, you know, we we would do yard work, we'd work in the yard on a Saturday, and then he'd say, hey, how about we knock off a little early and, uh, you know, dig some worms and go fishing. And still to this day, when I think about digging worms and going fishing, it just sounds like the best afternoon I could ever have, right? Just, just loved it. I- I exactly the way I grew up. My grandfather showed me how to take the hose and run water on the on parts of the uh, fertilizer pile, mm-hmm. the manure pile down at the edge of the barn and cause the worms to come to the surface nice. at night. You know, get out of the water and then you go out with a flashlight, pick your worms all up. And the next day you go fishing in the pond with a simple J hook and a, and a night crawler and try to catch a bluegill. Just yep. what you, uh, you, you alluded to. That's the same way I grew up. And that was there was such a thrill at seven or eight years old to go over, get your own cane pole, get your own line, go down get your worms that you had, you'd worked on the night before, go down to the pond, thread it all up, throw it out there, watch the bobber go down and pull in a bluegill. I, know. I just, that just suited me to the T. I couldn't have, uh, couldn't have had asked for a better 
good feeling than doing that. I know it was, it was very similar, very similar to me. And then, you know, later in my professional career, I would, uh, you know, take a, take a mullet under a cork or a pot, you know, a pinfish under a cork. And I would get the same, you know, thing when a tarpon would, would pull that cork down, I would just be like, it would just, it was, I mean, I love fly fishing for them too, but there's something about when you, when you grow up like that and you watch a cork go down, there is something about that cork going down. And I, you know, I got to say, you know, you're, you're nymph fishing with an indicator and, and that goes down. It's very similar. You know, I just like that. I like that pull down. And in Alaska, when we were up there recently, we were, we were using, you know, the, the, the long rods with the, with the cork way out there and, you know, a salmon would pull that under. And it was just, I just like that. I just think it's cool. And it, it, takes you right back to your right back to your roots yeah i like the halibut fish is what uh you know they're bottom fish Mm -hmm. bottom fear and throwing that out and bouncing that plug on the bottom and then you know the biggest one i ever caught was like 350 pounds i think port protection it was 80 85 inches long whatever we put it put it back because that's that's like trying to eat a mule (laughs) what a thrill to catch it though you know just uh we were just getting ready trying out our rigging and stuff when we were just outside the bay a little ways and we hadn't gone to where we were really going to fish yet and i bounced one of the plugs on the bottom and hooked up that's the biggest halibut i've ever caught right there just right outside of the the bay and uh took, you know, an hour, hour and a half to get him up and then, uh, to take pictures of him and then cut him loose, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that just took me back. That's the same way I felt back at the farm pond and just how you, you, what you just alluded to, just, uh, bouncing a, right. a nightclub on the bottom and having a bluegill take it. Was I a thrill. Know. And now you're moving into this, this new, this new, um, league. It's almost like going to the pros, right? Like you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you've been playing peewee ball and now you're, now you're in the NFL. I, one of my favorite parts of the whole book, and and this is also very similar to to my upbringing. My dad always had Field and Stream magazines, Outdoor Life, always had them around. We 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 always had them. He I think he may still have a subscription. He may be the last surviving sub- subscriber of the magazine. I don't know, but he um, he always had those around. And you had something in there about a very specific issue of a very specific magazine that had, uh, it even had the picture of it uh, on there. There was a grizzly bear, like going through somebody's camp and there's people in the, in the background. And, and you talked about how much that magazine meant to you and, and how many times you read it over and over and over again. I used to do the same thing. That's how I got into uh, fly fishing to begin with is I would just read these stories in outdoor life and field and stream about fly fishing in Yellowstone national park. And I would just dream about that and just sit there and just dream and dream and dream about it as a kid. And and then it eventually it ended up happening. That's how I started my, my guide career was in Yellowstone national park. And, um, and that particular magazine meant so much to you. Do you still have a copy of that magazine? I know I have a picture of it, <laughs> but I don't have the copy. But it was back in like the, the middle to the late 50s. And my mother knew that I just loved to fish and hunt and be out with the critters. And uh, I, you know, we didn't have bears in Ohio. Very rarely a black bear would be around or be seen somewhere. But we didn't have grizzly bears at all to the area I grew up in. But I dreamt about that. She knew I liked that, uh, that wild thing. And she went in at the grocery store and brought the groceries home on a Friday afternoon and had bought that copy of that magazine with the um, with a Kodiak bear, Kodiak uh, 
Grizzly on the on the cover. And oh gosh, I did I didn't even know, you know, I had heard of Alaska, but I didn't know much about it. But the article covered about where it was on Kodiak Island in, in uh, Kodiak, Alaska. And after that, I just set my sights on Kodiak, Alaska. I just uh that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to know that I had been there and explored that and saw the grizzly bears and been amongst them, Kodiak bears. And uh, it came to pass. It took uh, 35 to 40 years, but it came to pass. That's super cool. And so when you when you decided it was time to go to Alaska, was that in association with the show or were you up there before the show? I had made a few trips up there uh, during my football career. I had managed to get up there once or twice. Once on the way to Vietnam, I talk about it in the book with the USO. I was going to visit the troops and, and we had to go up to Alaska, change planes and then go over to uh, Southeast Asia from Alaska. And there was a layover thing and I got to go and drive around a little bit and see parts of Alaska and just got back to the plane in time to go on to Vietnam because there was some problems with the plane and we, we had like a 12 or 14 hour delay. So I got to drive around. But when I came back from that, then I aspired to get there. But of course, the NFL, I had to finish the NFL career and then my stint with the USFL and different things doing the TV show. Then when the TV show started, then that gave me an opportunity to channel towards going uh, to Alaska to do what I really wanted to do, which was an outdoor series in Alaska. And that finally came to pass. Now, what, how did you decide, you know, Alaska is a very big place. How did you kind of hone in on the, the area of Alaska that you wanted to spend your time? I honed in by having Audrey Bradshaw with me huh. as my life partner. And she picked the areas after we outlined what our budget was and who our sponsor was and what what the limitations were, she would plan how we would go to different sections and different areas of Alaska based on how many shows we could we could get in the can uh -huh. uh, doing that over a series of five to eight or 10 or 12, 14 days, maybe. So she systematically moved us around to where she could coordinate the different lodges and guides and people that were out in the outback to uh, take us to these different places and we would promote their guide business or promote their lodge business in accordance with that. And she regulated that and laid that all out without her and her expertise of uh, doing, she got very good at it and uh, it, it paid off in spades. Our show uh, just, the ratings just went, well, you know about mm -hmm. outdoor TV. Yeah. Sometimes you hit on something. We brought her Uncle Joe on, who was a railroad worker that liked to cook. He grew up as a third brother and was the guy that did all the cooking at the house because they ran a little boat livery in Florida. And I knew that he could really cook anything. And we were getting a lot of mail from people that were seemingly were a little irate that we were catching so many fish and harvesting so much game and not doing anything with it. So we brought him on. <clears throat> excuse me. We brought him on. And had him cook on the fireplace that we would wherever we were camped and show how how we prepared the different fish and the different game. Yeah. And the ratings surged like in double digits every time we would do that with him, her her uncle. Right. So we made him an actual part of the show. We stumbled. I'd like to tell you that I thought of that, but I didn't. It was just a, an idea. It wasn't, you know, we kind of discussed about bringing him on to show what to do with the fish to get some people that seemed irate about how many fish we were catching and so on. But then the show really started to take off when we had that cooking part on it. 
and it uh, well, again worked out for the positive. Yeah, that's fantastic. In in your book, I, I noticed right away uh, when you talked about the the show, it, the language, the exact language was we pitched, produced, and hosted twenty six thirty minute episodes for ESPN. And I knew from that one sentence, you can tell. Like, first of all, you know about outdoor TV because pitching it is one thing, producing it is another thing. Hosting it is another thing. Having it on ESPN in those days, I mean, that was the big, big deal. We had a show sure. on ESPN shortly after that. Those were the that was the biggest ratings. That was the biggest place that you could possibly have a show. And then, maybe the next sentence it said, and they they took the deal, and now we were on the hook for twenty six episodes. So that to me, like I was like, man, he really knows what he's talking about because. Like the way that you, you crafted that sentence of pitch produced and hosted, and then you were on the hook for these 26 episodes. Like it's, it's one thing to, to pitch it and have them accept it. It's another thing to think that you can produce it and then do it in Alaska where the weather is a serious factor. And, and it's such a huge place that you have all of this, this, this transportation and logistics and everything back and forth. You got the cameraman, you got the wildlife, you got all these things. And now you're, you're obligated to get the 26 episodes. That's, that's pretty challenging. But I, I, you know, just from that one sentence, I got it. I was like, you, 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 <laughs> you definitely knew what you were talking about. This wasn't just like some production company doing this for you because you obviously took pride in, in the fact that you pitch produced and hosted. And, uh, it was, it was a team effort with you and Audrey, but, um, that, that was, what did you learn, um, from that kind of, uh, deal of pitching, producing, and hosting. I can tell you the, the first thing that I learned when I pitched it the first time to the steel chainsaw people, <clears throat> we put together a, a proposal and put a figure on the bottom based on what we thought we could do traveling around Alaska under the best and worst scenarios, kind of averaged them out, and we got a figure. Of course, we honed that figure down, you know, having mm -hmm. pitched a show yourself, you know how you try to hone it down. Cause it's got to be realistic. You know, you're coming to something and telling them it's going to be this, but we're going to have to have that in order to do this. And they're like, well, that's a lot of money. They have standard resp response. So I had that all in a little portfolio and I laid it in front of the CEO for steel and a meeting head on, you know, we just, we sat down head on him across the table with his uh, lieutenants, me on my side with our, and he had, I had this pitch that we had and he, I gave him a copy and gave his assistants all a copy. The assistants all opened the, opened the copies and opened the, uh, the booklets and started to look at it. The guy, the CEO did not. He just sat there and looked at me. And we started the meeting and he, he uh, we went through the niceties of, you know, what, what we like to do and so on. And then when I finished with that, he leaned forward and said, uh, Mr. Zonka. I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, what makes you think you can sell steel chainsaws to people better than we can? And the room went quiet. And I just, this just so happened that I had been up there in Alaska about six or eight months before. And I'd been way out in the outback and uh, at a logging facility. And I stayed there at the logging facility. That was a 24 seven operation. They had a big maintenance shed with a dock on the side of it. And the guys would come in, these lumberjacks came in with their chainsaws and they'd put them up on that maintenance dock 
and go get eight hours sleep and then come back and get their chainsaws and go back to the woods. I mean, it was an ongoing thing all the time, 24 seven, they were cutting. Those lumberjacks got paid by the board foot, not by the day, not by the hour. They got paid by how much they produced with those saws. When I walked up to the maintenance dock, there were 17 saws on that maintenance dock. 15 of them were steels. Hmm. Now, if I'm a guy on the farm in Ohio, <clears throat> I want to know what the big guys use. You know, you want to, you want to cut wood like the big boys do. Well, the big boys that have to get paid by the board foot, they use steel. So that's what I said to that guy, the CEO of steel. He has not yet opened that pamphlet in front of him. He doesn't know the figure I've quoted anything. He leaned back, sat there for about 30 seconds of dead silence, longest 30 seconds I've ever been in a meeting room, and said, we'll buy it. Wow. <laughs> that's, when I, that's when I wished I could pull that back and change some of the <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've been there. You know what yes, I know. About. I have a story like that. I was, man, we should ask for more. Because <laughs> <laughs> you do a good job of pitching. and uh, But then, then now you're like, yeah, we should ask for more because now we got to do 26 of these episodes and we told them we were going to do this and this and this and this and this. And now we're going to have to do all of those things. Um, so we talked about maybe possibly the uh, the worst case scenario of of the show where you ended up in the in the ocean and in a in a dire situation. Uh, do you have some memories of of the shows and some things that maybe were super challenging uh production wise that, that you wanted to, to have happen on the show, whether it's hunting or fishing and uh, any one or two things that come to mind uh, from the, all that production. Tom, you know, you, you lay all that out, particularly when you're dealing with wildlife, fish and, and critters, you pl you try to plan things. And sometimes, you know, you're lucky 40% of the time that works out and you get some footage of the actual critters and things, you know, happening the way you want 40% of the time. But to be able to have a crew that can capture what's happening when it just when it's a total surprise, <clears throat> when you get up in the morning, you go out and you start cooking eggs and all of a sudden there's a, a mama grizzly or decides to eat your breakfast for you. Do you have cameramen that run into the bushes and crawl up trees or do they go get their camera and lay around the tent and try to film the mama grizzly eating our breakfast? That's what makes a great show when you have two camera guys and assistants that 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 are as intrigued about filming the show as you are. They're as into it as you are. You know, you've been around a lot of production in your 20 some years of doing this. You know what I'm talking about. So it takes a couple, three years to where you get people that they want to be in that scenario they want to be out there in the tents on the top of a mountain in Kodiak as much as you do. And they like it and they like to be out there and they want to catch the film for you, but they also want to wet a line once in a while. So yeah. once you get it, got a crew like that, that enjoys being out there and also enjoys the sport sporting side of it and knows what has to be captured on, on film. That's when it starts to gel. That's when that crew, that's when you get the great shots. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Fish breaking the water, jumping out instead of the cameraman picking up the camera and getting ready and missing that fish breaking the water, being already anticipated that and it's got his camera up and is ready. Those people are hard to find in this industry. Yes, they are. And and 
that sometimes it takes a like you said a couple of years to kind of go through a couple of people one of our big uh um challenges is that a lot of a lot of what we do is offshore and you know looking through a camera or looking through binoculars or looking through a, a camera lens you can take someone who's never been seasick one time in their entire life but you look through a, a camera lens for eight hours and it can make the the person that's never been seasick seasick very very quickly and very easily so seasickness has been a, a real challenge but there are those individuals that see things differently than just the regular person and they see it in a in an artistic photographer's way and they're like man i gotta get my camera and i'm on it and they they don't miss you know and those are those are the incredible those are the incredible people and you know in your book you you talk about those kind of people on the football field as well that they're just certain people that have certain characteristics that are going to gel as a team and uh and it's interesting because i, I kind of wondered it i don't think you really talked about it here that much because you didn't talk about production to the extent that we're talking here, but did, I'm sure that that you saw plenty of parallels between your football career and then doing doing the show and creating a team and leading a team and and do you do you have anything you can kind of leave us with about um, the, the 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 similarities between maybe football and and production in your mind? Teamwork. When teamwork, you know, we all get professional football and doing shows, you get paid to do a job, but you try to hire people that are more into it. They feel an obligation to be the best. And when you find those people, you're willing to pay them a little more because of the quality of the production they come with. The best way to talk about it in the field. Um, if a bear came into camp and someone hollered bear, most of the guides and everyone else would retreat to the safety of wherever the safety was, you know, the trees, the creek, whatever. Hammer guys that you want, before they would retreat to the safety, not that they wouldn't in a dire situation, we all had to. But most often you can tell the guys that are going to be the guys you want there with you because they ran to get their camera first. Mm -hmm. They grab their camera, then they talk about their safety, then they try to figure out how, and I'd watch to see which one showed up first with the camera to get the action of the bear coming into camp and tearing the tent up or whatever it was doing, because that's the guy you want with you because he's he's constantly thinking about the shot. In football, you know, you watch on the sidelines, people rush back, get out of the way when people run out of bounds. I look at the players that run up to help catch <laughs> or the people that come to the action versus mm -hmm. people that flee the actions. And that tells you where their heart's at. They're either into the game and into being a teammate or the cameraman is more into the film footage. Not that he's putting himself in, but he's willing to risk his safety of fleeing without the camera versus picking the camera up and getting a great shot. It's important to him to be the best he can be. Yeah. So you look for the people that can be the best they can be. And that's who you want to push up there towards the action. Well, you don't have to push them. Usually they're at the action. Right, right. And that's how I would cipher it. That's how I would look at it. The camera guys that I ended up with uh, after the first two or three years that we shot stayed with me the whole rest of the tenure mm -hmm. because they were those kind of guys. They, I never once after probably the third year did I ever have to say, get your camera or I want this, you know, get this shot. 
they already had anticipated it. They had their cameras up because they they were into being in the wild. Right. You either like the wild and become part of it or feel like you're at home in it or you're a fish out of water. And if you're a fish out of the water in the wild, you shouldn't be there. You know, you shouldn't be there. You should be with the bus up on the bridge, looking down, taking your Kodak and snapping a foot. But if you're going to be down there and in amongst it, then that's the cameraman. My cameraman used to love it when I would give them some time off where they could fish. Yeah. And then they'd worry if they got a big fish on, they'd make one of the other cameramen go back and get a camera and film it because we wanted footage of that fish. Yeah. See, when you have people working with you a lot, you know what I'm talking about. You've done the same thing in the field. When you get those kind of fellows and, and gals in the field with you that, that, uh, that realize that's the action you want and they, they like to do it themselves as well. And think of that almost before they think of themselves. Now you've got genuine, you know, 14 carat people that you want to keep around. Yeah, that's great. You make a great team. Um, one of the, uh, in your, in your heyday there, after the, the incredible season, you started to get all kinds of acting uh, opportunities. You were on the Tonight Show. You were hanging out at Elvis Presley's house. You were doing all of these things. You found yourself um, living in Manhattan. And then you would kind of flash to, then we were on this moose hunt. And I, I was just kind of wondering, like, you know, you've got to ride this wave of success. You're having this success. You're, you're, you're getting these opportunities. You're doing a lot of speaking engagements. Where along the line did you say, I got to get out of here and go back to the woods? Like, did you have to do that regularly? Was that a, was that a thing to keep your sanity or did you have it scheduled in or was it kind of a you know, it would just kind of happen that you would go on a hunt or you would go on a fishing trip or how would you, how would you balance that time? There was a time of change when I came out of the NFL, I was, uh, you know, uh, playing in the NFL from the time I started to the time I uh, got out or was fired or retired, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> probably 12 or 13 years there. I, I was much better off than of course, when I started uh, you know, I had, I acquired, uh, uh, my assets had grown terrifically, but I still needed to work, but I really wanted to do something that I wanted to do. And I thought, well, I, you know, I, I got to be friends with a number of different people because of the popularity of football and met Burt Reynolds and Dinah Shore and some folks and were on several, uh, uh, Johnny Carson, people like that. And because of that, I got to be around some of those people. And I thought, you know, maybe I, I kind of like the people that I met. And I thought maybe acting Bert was after me quite a bit to try it and Diana. And I thought, well, I'll just try a little piece on these different things. But I, I realized when I went to do it, I, I'm just not a good, uh, <laughs> I just uh, never could get into the acting thing. I just couldn't get fully in, engulfed in it. I, I not, I don't know whether I was, uh, I wasn't particularly great at it anyway, but it, at the same time, it wasn't, uh, yeah, I just didn't have the feeling of doing it like I was doing what I wanted to do, but then getting into outdoor TV, uh, you know, that bell only rang mm -hmm. once or twice. And I realized that's the playground I want to be on. Um, getting around those people that are involved in the acting and the uh, TV yeah, dinosaur, Burt Reynolds, those folks, great folks. And, but you have to have, um, a show of a camera presence that, uh, I just, I don't think I had, so I didn't see that as a future for me. So that's when I turned to, uh, 
you know, getting involved and going back to Alaska, really started to think about that. And uh, that's when Audrey and I sat down and said, this is the way we'll approach it. Maybe we can do our own show. That's when Kurt Gowdy's words rang in my, in my ear. And I thought, yeah, I'll never know unless I take a shot at it. So I went to some different folks and Steele bought it and we started for a few years and tried it. And then four or five years into it, Napa stepped in and bought the whole thing out and gave us a full 26 episode deal. And wow. Way we went, and you know that how what a great feeling that is when you finally go in and not like when I put the, the portfolio on the steel on the table in front of the steel CEO, and I was guessing, I was guessing at all that you know. Now after doing it for a while, and then steel come or Napa came in and took over the thing and just uh, bankrolled it, and we uh, we went full tilt. What a great feeling! And. Yeah. It was the experience too. It was probably the fourth or fifth year that I've been doing it on my own. And uh, it was a great feeling to know that we had a, a larger budget and could go and take all the camera guys with us and we could just do seven or eight episodes in a row in yes. different locations. Yeah. And uh, then it got to be, I, it was a lot of work, but it was also a lot of fun. And that I think is what to try to answer your question why I didn't get involved in acting. It was, it was work. And, but I didn't, I never enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. When I got into the outdoors and started hunting and fishing and taping it and bringing it and particularly in Alaska, I felt a great satisfaction. Like something was being accomplished. And I looked at the ratings and they were just out of sight, mainly because of Alaska and mainly because of the people that we had on the show. But it, it was just a great feeling to be able to bring that forward and have it appreciated on, on that plateau. That's awesome. That's a, that's a, that's an awesome story. Um, so as we kind of draw this to a close for today, I'd love to have you back on the show at some point. Uh, and, uh, we're going to get this fishing trip together. Uh, we're going to go trout fishing here after, after we do this, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to a special place that you're going to really enjoy. Um, but I just want to ask you, uh, three questions that you can kind of, kind of, uh, think about, but this is the way we're gonna we're gonna end it for today. If you could have, uh, if you could leave one or two pieces of advice, and I know that you've left an entire you've left an entire book of advice on on his book here, head on Larry Zonka. It's out right now, and you can you can go and and get this book. It's a really good read, by the way. I don't usually read a three hundred page three hundred fifty page book in uh, two days, but I did this one. Um, almost in two sittings, I read your book. So very good. Um, of course, I was very interested in the in the subject matter. But if you could leave us one or two pieces of advice based upon what you've learned in the the incredible life you've lived through football and farm life and outdoors and production and all of this different stuff, if you could just leave us a couple of pieces of advice, what would that be based upon all that you've learned in your life? I think. Um having lived my life, I would say if I could go back and do it again, I would exercise more patience with everyone until I realized what it was that I really wanted. Um, I would grow very impatient very quickly as a child with anything that, that didn't satisfy me right away. But I think learning patience, particularly with people, with relationships, uh, with folks, just like the Shula story. First impulse was, I don't like this guy and he don't like me. I need to get out of here. And, you know, to have patience, you know, to, to give it an opportunity, I think, is is a big thing. Okay. Of course, as we grow older, we learn patience because we, we've, we've gone down the wrong road so many times and didn't realize that we should have taken the other road. 
And that teaches us as we get older patients to have that earlier would be a true blessing, I think. That's fantastic. Fantastic piece of advice. And then um, from someone who has achieved true excellence on the football field, true excellence in production, what is your definition of excellence? I think the satisfaction of knowing you gave it your all and what you got lives up to your expectations. You know, it's one thing to go in and pitch a program. It's another thing to have done it for five years and realize that people truly appreciate it. And there's a great rectifying that goes on between the original plot and what you finally come up with. But you have to learn that patience and learn how to upgrade that as you go along. So that patience in that regard as well uh, to to perform. Mm-hmm. And so the you, you, you kind of answered it. But the last question I had for you is... What does it take to achieve excellence in any endeavor? <laughs> in, a, in a word, sacrifice. Coach Shula said that our objective is perfection or as close as we can get. We have to be willing to sacrifice. He alluded to the fact that we played in the, in the Florida heat, said we're, we're going to cut out our water breaks. And we're going to become camel-like and, and, By doing that, we'll be able to outlast the other team. Our attention to detail. You know, uh, the worst thing you could do for Coach Hill is go through the motions. In other words, to act like you were sincere but not be sincere. So to make that sacrifice in order to get that gain and strive for perfection. And that takes a sacrifice. I love it. I love it. Man, that's some uh, that's some very very wise advice, and uh, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on here. And I hope to uh, I hope to have you on again. And I really I really want to uh, show you some of these pictures of this this place. I want to take you, and uh, okay. and hopefully we can get there. But Larry, um, thank you for being here. You should uh, definitely check out his book head on. I'm assuming it's everywhere books are sold. Is that yes? If you have any trouble finding it just come to larryzonka.com and we'll steer you to it (laughs) okay all right that's fantastic and uh that was a fantastic episode today as always if you enjoyed this episode leave a rating and review and we'll be back next week with another amazing guest like larry zonka see you